start with a question that I want you to ask, ask each other, talk about at your couches, tables, whatever it is you're sitting at. Here's a question. True or false, if God asks you to do something, He's going to help you accomplish it. He's going to help you accomplish it. True or false, if God asks you to do something, He's going to help you accomplish it successfully. Ready? Go. Yes. jump in. So, what are your answers? What what did you come up with? What do you think? Yes, I heard a yes right away. Okay? Yes. True. True. So true. You're saying Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying always though. I'm just saying it's not an always yes. Okay? It's not an always yes. It's not an always true. Okay? Kind of thought like unless it's approval, you know, to show you a lesson, or he's gonna ask you to do something you may fail for a reason. If if is you failing your fault or right? So like if you if God asks you to do something and you fail and you learn a lesson from it, great. But did you fail because you screwed up or I screwed up or we screwed up or would God ever ask us to do something that wouldn't actually happen? Like that wouldn't be accomplished? So the prophets are going to be an interesting group of people for you to think through then. Um, because he asked them to call for the repentance of his people. And many of them did it for years. Some... 40, 50, 60 years, and they saw no repentance. So Jeremiah would be an example of a guy who, right, 40 years of traveling around, preaching, um, speaking for God, calling people to repentance, and they think maybe he had two people that repented. Um, so I guess there's success in that. But, but for the, by and large, for the most part, the people didn't repent. Um, you, Elisha was 60 years and he was, he was preaching to the northern tribe of Israel the northern kingdom and when they had all bad kings so they, he saw no full repentance of the nation like the very thing that God is asking them to do now it's, it's somewhat of a trick question because God asked them to preach and remind the people of God's faithfulness and remind the people of their covenant with him and to call, point out their sin and, and call them back to Him. And they did that faithfully, and God helped them accomplish what He asked them to do. Okay? But what didn't happen is the people repent. So it, it, it's one of those cases where you have to think through, okay, what does it mean to, what does success mean? Does success always mean that everything I set out to do, I'm going to accomplish? And if I don't accomplish it, it's because I screwed up or someone else, some, it's someone's fault. But God would never ask me to do something that, that would be difficult. or Well, let, that would be too easy of an answer. God would never ask me to do something that, that would not happen, that would not be accomplished, that would not be um, 
like, like the nation of Israel, turn back to Him. And so, um, in the Bible, we have, to, we have to wrestle with God's definition of success. And when God, when God asks us to do something, what, do we, what is our expectations about how um, this is supposed to go and how, what success is supposed to look like? And, and if success is always defined by me accomplishing everything I set out to do, then we are going to be disappointed. And, and the prophets don't seem to, that doesn't seem to be their life. Um, and so you, there, there's just this, we have to wrestle with, with God allowing the prophets to preach on a regular basis and no one listen. We have to deal with a God that would ask them to do that. Recognizing that he asked them to do crazy things, like crazy things. Walk around naked for three years, right? Just to, just to prove a point. Marry a prostitute who's going to cheat on you regularly just to show how Israel is unfaithful to God. Like those are the kinds of things that God's going to ask these prophets to do. And it's all for a greater purpose. But we still have to wrestle with the God asking the person to do something. And so, um, anyway, you, you have to wrestle with this. Um, we, we, have to, we have to stand back and go, okay, God, how do, you, how do you define success when it comes to doing the things that you've called us to do? So any, any thoughts? What, what are you, what's kind of going through your head? Yes. No, I would say how much of our thinking is success is tied to some particular result that we think we ought to get. When the success of the might be nothing more than God asked to succeed, and they did that. Yep. They succeeded in firing off a lot of words, knowing in most cases that their words were not going to make any difference at all, but yet they obey God. And to that extent, you know, as we see throughout the Ezekiel, they, they will know their prophets. Yeah. You know, so if you look at it that way, you see success. If you're looking at, well, they didn't repent, so the result is there that really ought to be there. That gives you a little bit of view of success. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah, it's yeah. result oriented. We are so result oriented. Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. We we are result oriented, and so therefore, when God asks us, us to do something. We want results. We, we expect to get the results that, that we think we're going to get because he asked us to do it. And, and instead, of, of, instead of being faithful-oriented, as the definition of, of success would be a great way to think through that. Okay. Well, um, I've, I've been watching. Anybody, anybody watching the, the um, series AD continued? Okay. A few of you? I've been watching them. We've been watching them. Our family has been pretty, pretty regularly. We have one left, and there's, there's 12 episodes. And they've done a really good job of, of recreating uh, first century tension and, and turmoil and, and kind of the political power plays that are going on between, between the, the Jews and the Romans and Pilate and Caiaphas. And, and so you have this... Really interesting dynamic. There, I mean, it's not all 
chronologically in, in order according to the Bible. They're kind of using some creative license as they always do. But I thought they've done a really good job of describing the tension. And one of the things that, that I've really been impressed with is the portrayal of Caiaphas, the high priest of Jerusalem. He's, he's the very man that basically pushed for Jesus to be crucified. And you get to see him in a different light. You get to see him as a man who's zealous for God, zealous for the temple, zealous for the protection of the temple and the, and, and the adherence to the law and, and the, the outright um, just, I don't know what you would say, uh, outright blatantly upset against, um, violently against any sort of idolatry taking place. So one of the scenes is, um, the emperor, the new emperor, wants to put a statue in the temple, and, and he, he is vehemently against this, and he thinks it's going to just put the city in uproar and cause, um, cause the, uh, the, basically the end of the world to come. He thinks this, that the great abomination is going to happen because this emperor is going to put a statue in the temple. And you see this hatred for any hint of idolatry. In fact, like Ryan pointed out last week, um, the very fact that they that Jesus claimed to be God was like, no, nope, kill him. He's done. Kill him. So how did how did the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, Caiaphas, how did they get to that point in Jesus' day? When you when you rewind about a thousand years, eight hundred years, and they are giving themselves over to any and every idolatry of the nations around them. I mean, they have pole, Asherah poles. They have. They're worshiping other gods. They're creating temples, these high places, they call them. Um, so how did that swing happen? And we'll talk through that a little bit. But I want to talk a little bit about prophets. Prophets have, have, have gotten a, a bad rap, um, at least I think growing up. I pictured these men as just angry guys that walked around yelling at everybody. Like... God gave, told them to, to yell at the people, they're sinning, they need to repent, they need to stop. And it was just a, a ministry of, of uh, angry guys, angry elves, just walking around yelling. And, and it wasn't until, I think, probably in the last five or six years, as I, as I began to study God's faithfulness to pursue His people, that you really see the prophets as evidence of God's grace as he pursues his people um, and calls them back to relationship and to repentance and to covenant um, relationship with him. Um, and, and so you see the rise of the prophets during a time when, when Israel started just abandoning their covenant with God. And it's just it's an interesting thing. Um, and so I, I want to talk through that. I want you to, I want you to catch these, these, these men that have been called by God but more than that, I want you to see God's faithfulness to pursue His people in the midst of His promises that He's going to um, bless them and, and, and make a great nation out of them and bless all peoples through them. This is themes that we've been talking about every week since we've started. But you're going to see God's faithfulness to those promises as He pursues His people, even in the midst of their sin. He's not going to just give them a pass. He's going to deal with them. He's going to deal with them severely by handing them over to other nations, as he'd promised he'd been doing, he would do for hundreds of years, and they finally, he finally did it. And so you're going to see him deal with sin um, justly and strongly, um, but at the same time, all of it is grace and, and mercy and compassion as he pursues 
these people that are just quick to forget who God is and what He's done. So, turn to Psalm 89. I want you to catch a uh, little bit of the heart of the prophets. Last week I read this psalm as a, uh, as a, as a reminder of David's covenant. This psalm is, is used often to, to point out David's covenant with his people. And so the psalm starts by proclaiming how we will sing to the Lord for His steadfast love. Now, in the middle, it spins, it spins the middle portion, um, verses 20 and through like 37, yeah, describing David's covenant and God's promises to David to, that His kingdom will last forever. And then the end, he basically goes from there, he, the rest of the chapter is him saying, Where are you, God? So, so let me read a few verses here. Verse 38, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. With the, your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Um, he says, you have, 42, he says, You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Um, he says, verse 47, Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. Uh, verse 50, Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of, of, of all the many nations. And then the very last verse, Blessed be the Lord forever. It's kind of like, okay, and there's that. He just spends, you know, 10 or 12 verses just saying, God, where are you? Um, you've abandoned us. Uh, everyone around us is mocking us. They're mocking us. They're mocking you. Where are you? Save us. And then, blessed be the Lord forever. That, that really is uh, kind of the heart and kind of a picture of the ministry of the prophets. They, they are... Faithful men to call out, uh, call God's people back to repentance and back to their their relationship with their Creator, their God, and they do it faithfully, and and sometimes they do it with emotion and heart, uh, most all the time. So, so let, let's jump in. Let me, in order to say, kind of describe, kind of where where things are right now in the history of Israel. Um, last week we walked through the kings. It's it's going to fall right in line with the kings. Um, but we're, we want to view it from the prophet's perspective. So, just as a, as a recap, kings are meant to lead the people, right? So, God anointed kings to, to lead His people, to lead them um, against other nations in, in battle. Um, and usually, the kings set the tone for the people. And so, that's why when they broke up into two different kingdoms, if it was a good king, the people were faithful. If it was a bad king, the people just totally lost their way. So the kings were meant to lead the people. The priests were meant to teach the law, which from what I can see and, and tell, they were virtually silent through um, the kings, the period of the kings. And, and so there was a, and, and some believe that for a lot of years, there was no law, like, like Ryan pointed out. David most likely didn't have the law to read from. Um, he, um, that he wasn't practicing some of these holidays that they now practice, and they found they found it later. And so, you have the priests that are supposed to be teaching law, and then prophets were called messengers and spokesmen um, to call people back. Like I said, to to him, 
to, to tell them of future consequences for disobedience or future rewards for obedience. Uh, and, and then also proclaim a messianic restoration that will, that will come. So that was, the, that was the role of the prophets, hired specifically, called specifically um, by God for that purpose. You can, put the, you can put the prophets into two groups. Former prophets would be really anyone from Abraham. Uh, Melchizedek would be, would be an example of that. Moses and, and Joshua would be considered um, prophets in some way because they spoke with God and they spoke for God. They were spoke, spokesmen, messengers for God. Um, Samuel, Nathan, Ahijah were all prophets during David and Solomon's day. And these are all considered like the former prophets. And then the, then the, the latter prophets would be kind of the official, uh, like Elijah, when he comes on the scene, and Elisha. And then, of course, all the, uh, all the prophets that, that wrote books and wrote, um, were, were writing prophets. So these are, these are known as the, um, as, the, as the latter prophets, and then you can break up the, the written prophets into major and minor. And the major is not, an important, not a matter of importance, just a matter of length. Um, so you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, are considered these major prophets because they wrote such, at such length. And then the other ones were smaller, so they're called minor. So you, in your deal, you have a map. Well, you have actually a couple charts. The first chart, we'll, we'll say on this front page, even though it's tiny print, I apologize for that. Um, it gives you an idea of kind of the timeline. Eli- Elijah and Elisha would have been first in order. Jonah most likely is, is next. Um, we'll talk a little bit about him. Um, and then on down you see, you see prophets are active in Israel. And then you see a time come where there's no more prophets in Israel because Israel's been destroyed by Assyria. And then active in Judah, on through, and then you have even a couple that are active in Babylon, meaning they are in exile. So that's, that helps kind of give you that perspective in order. And then this back page is pretty detailed, actually. And so... I'm going to just walk through a couple things with it, and then, and then we're just going to walk through century by century of the prophets. So you have, like I said, Samuel, Nathan, Ahijah, all happening around the time of, of Saul and David and Solomon. Uh, and then you have several, several years uh, of, of silence. Although, when you read, when you read through the, the, the history books, you see prophets of Israel. It'll, it'll name them. And the man of God that, you know, on the road spoke. And, so you see these men that, that jump up. So they were clearly prophets. They just weren't either named or they didn't have a significant voice in the life of the history of Israel. Um, the, the, um, the royal dynasties is kind of interesting to, fall, to see who followed in David's line and then who was re- related on, the, on Israel's side. So right here in the middle, you have on the left, you have the kings of Judah, and on the right, you have the kings of Israel. Okay, And then to the left of the kings of Judah, you have the prophets of Judah. And then to the right of the kings of Israel, you have the prophets of Israel. So, oh, the, other, the other couple interesting things is 
the hands. I know you had we had these last week where it tells you kings, good king, thumbs up, bad king, thumbs down, okay king is kind of thumbs in the middle. And uh, you certainly had a lot of each. On, on Israel's side, they were all bad. On Judah's side, they were some good, some decent, some half okay, and then some bad. So you can see kind of in the life of, of these prophets how long they, they, their ministry was, who, who the kings were um, when, when they were prophesying. It just gives you a little more perspective. Elisha having probably the longest ministry, Elisha and, Eli- and Isaiah. Uh, Elisha was around 60 years, Isaiah was around 50 years. So it's a long, long time to be preaching the same message. Alright, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to walk through. I'm just going to highlight some things in each century. I'm not going to give a whole ton of details. I'm still learning. Anybody here a huge history nut? Like when you read history, it just clicks and you remember dates and you remember names and you remember people. And Anybody? Okay, Drew is definitely that. Okay, the role should have been reversed. He should be doing this part. I should be doing that. But, but I am. I, that's it's not naturally me. I've I've been working. I had to work a ton last week just to get my my mind around the order of these things and how this works. It's, it's always been blurry in my head, and it's still a little blurry, uh, although I've I've learned a ton. So so I'm not going to do this a whole lot of justice. I'm sure Drew will be able to fill in some gaps when I get up when he gets up here. Um, but I want to walk through century by century and just talk through a few things. As you see, uh, in the 800s, okay, we'll start there. Um, the prophets come on the scene. Elijah, uh, Micaiah comes on the scene, possibly Obadiah. Obadiah is one of those ones we don't know exactly when he, his ministry was because there's no, in his, in his book, there's no indication of a date or a king or doesn't connect him to a time. So he, he's, he's in there a couple different places. Um, but Elijah and Elisha come on the scene when who is king? Ahab. So if you remember last week, Ryan talked about Ahab being, like all the other kings in Israel were bad. Ahab took the cake. Like he was the worst of the worst. He, he married a, a, girl, a lady named Jezebel who was, you know, the, the, the daughter of a queen of another nation. Daughter of another nation. So So you have this terrible king and all of a sudden God's, God's prophets show up to preach repentance. And so Elijah was, um, did several things, but obviously he was known for uh, his duel on Mount Carmel, resulting in the death of hundreds of Baal's prophets. Um, Elisha's ministry takes over when, when Elijah, is do- Elijah is done. Elisha was, was Elijah's like attendant or or servant, or however you want to describe that, he followed him around. Uh, he when 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 Elijah left, Elisha wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and so he 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 walked powerfully uh, among the people of Israel. Um, I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story where these boys, these like forty-two boys, call him bald, like naming him, calling him the bald man. You guys know the story. Like accusing him, or just teasing him, calling him bald, and he calls on these two bears to come and basically just maul these kids. Like, wow, okay, thank you very much. 
Um, promise that won't happen here. Um, he raised, is known for raising the widow's son, refusing uh, Naaman's gifts. This, this great commander from this from this other um, other nation who had had success. The Lord had given success. Naaman comes over and he's got leprosy and. He hears about Elisha and he goes to meet him and he has this entourage and he has all these gifts and he shows up and Elisha's like, he sends his servant out, ah, go tell him to dip in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be healed. You know, and the Jordan River to, to Naaman was like a creek to us. It'd be like, you want me? I just traveled all this way with all the stuff. You know who I am? And, and uh, of course, he eventually he does it and, and he's healed. And so that's, that's a great story. Um, possibly Joel would have been around the 800s, um, describing uh, a, a locust plague, but again, there's no tie to a certain date, so we don't know exactly when he his ministry was. It could have been at the beginning or it could have been at the very end. Um, and then you get to the 700s, where, where Jonah and Hosea are, are two of the main kind of characters. I, uh, last week, Ryan talked about Jonah reluctantly preaching to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So, if you remember, in 722, Assyria is who is world power. They come and they take over Israel. They conquer Israel. Okay, God, God had told them for hundreds of years this is what's going to happen, and he does it. Um, about approximately 20 years before Assyria becomes a world power, Jonah is preaching, again, reluctantly, but preaching, to, the, to, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And you see God's um, mercy and compassion um, to, to these people who he, he called to repentance and they, and they repented. And, and Jonah was ticked about it. He did not want them to repent. He did not want God to show them mercy. And that's how the book basically kind of ends. And what's interesting about that story, which is what Ryan pointed out last week, is like I said, 20 years later, they become world power, and they come in and they wipe Israel out. And so in this story, you see, you see God's sovereignty over the events of history. You, you start to wonder, okay, wow, God, are you, you really in that much control? Are you really that faithful to, to your own promises and word? And, and you can't help but, but say yes. Um, Hosea is another interesting prophet during this time. He would have been right at the end of Israel's history. Um, he was dealing with social injustice, uh, again, fueled by covenant disobedience, warned them of the day of the Lord, God's judgment. Uh, he was called to marry a prostitute and um, who would be unfaithful to him in order to depict uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so here's, here's some of the um, that, that uh, Hosea uses in his book. He he refers to Israel as a promiscuous wife, an indifferent, indifferent mother, an, an illegitimate child, an ungrateful son, a stubborn heifer. <laughs> I mean, so these are the things he's calling them. And they didn't like it. Um, so Israel's unfaithfulness, this is kind of the point of Hosea, Israel's unfaithfulness was not enough to exhaust God's love for them. In fact, if you write these verses down, Hosea 2, 14 through 20. Hosea 2, 14 through 20. Go back and read that. It's a, it's a beautiful description of God's love for His bride, um, Israel. 
And, here's the other thing, and Hosea predicts the doom of, of Assyria. He basically predicts Assyria coming in and wiping them out. And this happens a couple times. It happens with Isaiah, which I'll get to, but this is another interesting thing that you have to deal with with the prophets is they're not just saying, okay, remember what God said? He's going to do it if you don't listen. You know, he's not just saying that. It's like, remember what God said? He's going to do it if you don't listen. And, by the way, here's what's going to happen. And, and, and those events would happen. And so it's, it's a miraculous thing. Um, and then shortly after that, Assyria does come in, conquers Israel, 722 is that date. Important date to remember. And it ends the prophets for the northern Israel. And then you get over to the southern. So right around the same time, Isaiah would have been uh, in his ministry and, and Micah. And next to, next to Elisha, Isaiah's one of the longest ministries, again, around five decades. He was considered probably the greatest prophet, uh, shared concern for sin and judgment and need for repentance. Um, God asked Isaiah to do a, some crazy things. Like I said, he asked him to be naked and barefoot for three years. To walk around naked and barefoot for three years for this reason. To illustrate how Assyria would lead the Egyptian captives... So, so basically, during this time, Israel or, and Judah decided, instead of trusting God, instead of seeking after God, because Assyria is growing in power, they're going to look to another power. We're going to look to Egypt, and we're going to get in cahoots with Egypt, and Egypt will come in, and they'll save us. And, and God says to Isaiah, walk around naked for three years to show what will happen to Egypt when Assyria comes in. And you've trusted in them. Basically, is kind of the message. Crazy. Uh, he also predicts. He also so so Isaiah is ministering around the 700s, right? He predicts Babylon to come in about 120 to 140 years later. He predicts that they will be a world power, that they will capture Judah and Jerusalem. Then he predicts that Persia will eventually take over. King Cyrus. He's he's naming specific things. That King Cyrus will become king. And he will let them return back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Like Isaiah predicts those events that happen 120 plus years later. It was kind of crazy. And then we get to the 600s, 600 and 500s, where you have Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. Um, so by this point, is, uh, Israel's gone. Um, Judah is barely holding on for dear life. Um, the prophets continue to speak against a growing power of ultimate demise of Assyria, and, and then eventually Babylon takes over on 612. Um, and so you have this backdrop where some of, the, some of the people are in exile during this time. And, and, we, and we know for sure that, that Ezekiel and Daniel are two of the ones that are preaching from exile um, to, to the nation of Judah. And so, uh, Daniel was taken around 605, um, along with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was there until around 536, and so a long, long time. Um, we don't know how long his ministry was, but we know he was there possibly there until they were released. Ezekiel joined, joined them around 597. Uh, he wrote of visions uh, of destructive times and future days of glory. Um, Again, just not enough time to get into it all. Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah, known as a weeping prophet, faithfully preached for 40 years. Like I said, he might have had two converts. Repeatedly preached repentance, yet um, some of his most famous words are this promise of a new covenant um, that's quoted in Hebrews 8. But it's basically saying, listen, one of these days, God will establish a new covenant. And no longer will you have to look to the law to, to know God. You will know God because the law will be written on your hearts. And you can say to your neighbor, know God. And of course, he's describing this, this new covenant in Jesus and the age of God's Spirit coming inside. And so, huge, huge part in, in Israel's history and their understanding of what's to come. Most likely, um, Jeremiah would have been taken. This was interesting. I just learned this. He was taken by his fellow Jews against his will to Egypt and presumably died in Egypt um, after the fall of Jerusalem. So... All right, and then in 586 is when Babylon, uh, Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Um, Obadiah would have been most likely there, could have been there around this time and witnessed this. And then you get into the 500s and the 400s, right, because we're going backwards. 500 to 400. You have Ezra, Nehemiah. So, so Babylon takes over, takes them over. Um, about 50 plus years later, Persia takes over becomes a world power. Cyrus is king, says to the Jews, all right, you can, you can go back and rebuild. You can, re- you can actually read that at the end of Second Chronicles, the very last chapter of Second Chronicles. talks about um, King Cyrus releasing the Jews to go back. And so during that time you have Ezra and Nehemiah who were considered, not necessarily considered prophets, but just God's agents. <laughs> Ezra was sent to rebuild the temple which David, or not David, Ryan showed a picture of last, last week how pathetic it was compared to the original one. Nehemiah was sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, right, to shore up God's, God's city. And Haggai and Zechariah would have been prophets right around this time. Uh, Malachi would have been one of the last prophets. And by this time, the people of Israel, so think about what they've been through. Um, they were united under, under, under David, living in the glory days. Um, it goes bad with Solomon. They, they, they split up into two different nations. One is all bad. The other one is half good. Just a, just a terrible story of falling for idolatry and sin and idolatry and sin and idolatry and um, re- rejecting God constantly. And then, and then they're taken captive several different times. They're in exile. They're, they're spread out. Their leaders are removed. People are brought in. Um, all kinds of stuff is happening. And so the sentiment of the people by this time, by the time they're released to rebuild, is defeated, hopeless. Um, there, there's a, a sense of uh, basically just complacency. And like, like Ryan said, a spiritual malaise just kind of existed. So that, that's why when the temple was rebuilt, um, half the people were shouting because they're excited. Yes, things are happening. And the other half were old men that were crying because they remember what the old one was like, and this is nothing like this, nothing like what God had established. And this one commentary said this. I thought this was interesting. It's kind of a reflection of a little bit of Malachi's ministry. But um, faithful obedience was not useful in the time of Israel during this time. Pragmatically, it made more sense to just focus on having a good life despite the circumstances. So it didn't make sense for the people of Israel to be faithful to God because all it did was get them 
in trouble with those around. There's there's countries around that wanted that did not want them to become a world power, and would were doing things to try to stop them. And so it just became about complacency. And then you have, over the next 400 years, you have silence from God. No prophets speak. Um, no activity. What seems to be, um, you have for the most part they are, they are um, always under someone else's rule, with the exception of this period of time called the Maccabees when they fought for power and had it and then then lost it again. Um, But for the most part, they were completely enslaved. And during this time, they decided they were never going to let this happen again. This is what Ryan described. They were never going to let idolatry and and those those kinds of covenant disobedience happen again in their their nation. So what they do, they created... um, this is a time when they created Pharisees, Sadducees, um, the Sanhedrin. They created all these, these entities in order to protect their people from breaking the law, from falling for idolatry. And you see this, this pendulum swing hard to the other side. Instead of disobedience, sin, and idolatry, it became legalism. Um, it became just self-righteousness. Uh, and so that's what, that's what Jesus is dealing with when he comes in the first century. Um, Jesus calls them blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And, and essentially he's saying, listen, if you would have known Moses and known the prophets, you would know me. And they, they totally missed it. So let me, uh, yeah, we're going to take a break. Drew's going to get up and, and talk through more of the theology of the prophets. So if you need to uh, stand up, stretch, use the restroom, you can. And we'll get started in about three minutes. Okay. Um, as we kind of jump in real quick, any any thoughts after after kind of that stuff? Any either thoughts or questions kind of rolling through your head before we move into this next part, based on what we just talked through? Yes. Yes. And you really do have to look at like the big picture of that instead of just going on what you like grew up thinking or yes. looking at how they're calling them to repent, which is ultimately God's love and grace. Yes. God's faithfulness in all of this and especially the prophets. That's true. That's true. That's something that we'll explore a little bit more in this half, but that is a to see God's faithfulness in sending the prophets and God's faithfulness in even judgment, um, faithfulness to himself and to his word and to his people, um, which, is, which is important to be able to catch and see. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that a lot of the prophets like died at places like yeah. without ever seeing the fruit of what they were doing. Yes. But it was like hundreds, thousands of years later that yeah. like the success came. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to think about how even like success, like my definition of success, goes beyond the time frame that yeah. I'm able to comprehend. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I I have 
friends and family who are serving on the mission field in, in different places. And, and one of my prayers for them sometimes is just that um, God would give them the blessing of letting them see some of the fruit of their labor. Um, because that is actually, and, and I pray that knowing that that is a blessing if they get that, that that's not, it's not actually owed to them. And, and for a number of people that they don't get to, and, and as Lowell kind of put it, success is not numbers, and success is not what you get to see always. Success is defined biblically as faithfulness to your task. And sometimes there may be no fruit that ever comes from it, or sometimes that fruit comes long after you're around even to experience it. But, um, but to be able to be faithful with it um, is, is huge and important. That's good. Um, so as Scott just mentioned, he, he talked through the history of the prophets, and, and what I want to talk through with you guys is the message of the prophets, which is a little bit, I do even recognize as I say that, to say I'm going to talk about the message of the prophets is um, not quite, but somewhat like saying we're going to talk about the opinion of the Americans, right? Because, um, because the truth is there's, there's all kinds of opinions for Americans, and, and there's a number of different prophets. There are actually more books that fit under this category, prophecy, than any other category or any other genre in Scripture. Um, so, list it, name it, narrative, poetry, um, gospel, uh, proverbs, or, or wisdom, whatever it is, prophecy actually holds more, 17 different books in there. And so, there's no way to just say, this is the message of all of them, because they're each addressing specific situations and specific um, context, but there are actually, as you march through um, the prophets, you can find some general themes that's, that tend to be true um, uh, of pretty much all of them all the way through. And, and that's what I want to kind of explore and, and talk a little bit about tonight. Um, as, as Scott kind of mentioned, the prophets, even though there are more books fitting in that category than any other, they're also probably... Um, rank among the most misunderstood books because of our tendency to pull them out of their context and to pull them out of the larger story and to just kind of read them as these standalone books. Oftentimes we don't do that actually. We read them as standalone chapters or more likely than that as standalone verses that we can put on coffee mugs or on verse a day calendars, right? And and so, and, and so, for that reason, we, we miss them a lot. We miss what they're about because we make them either. We either read the angry, harsh stuff or we read the blessings and promises that we just assume are directly for me and, and miss a lot of what the prophets are about. Uh, that's why I want to make sure, just like we're doing all summer, I want to make sure that we're seeing them in the context of the bigger story. So let's just kind of start back at the beginning and you're going to be sick and tired of hearing this at the end. Good. I want you to have heard it so much um, that you, you maybe you know, get a little bit nauseous when you hear me bring up Genesis 1.28 again. Um, but the beginning has God creating um, human beings, male and female, in His image. That's Genesis 1.27, that they're made in the image of God. And we said that being made in the image of God has a number of implications, but three specific things that we drew out of that. Do you remember? Okay, that first of all, being made in the image of God, we resemble God. That is, we are able to um, look like Him, to, to resemble His character, to be able to, um, to reflect His nature um, around us. Uh, that, that's, we're designed that way. What else? Okay, I heard, well, I'll just go here real quick first. Rule. 
That is that just as God rules and reigns over the, all the earth, that's what human beings were designed to do. God says in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. And he talks about covering the earth and then he says, and have dominion over the earth. Have dominion over creation. We rule like God, not just that we're actually meant to rule on his behalf, rule under him. And then the last I heard Kelsey say was relate. That just as God is a relational God, three persons in perfect relationship from all eternity, that human beings actually had the ability to relate, first of all, to one another, but also, more importantly, to Him. And, and so, that's the idea, except for sin breaks all three of these, and that we no longer resemble this character. We, we no longer rule on His behalf and rule properly. Instead, we try to usurp that authority for ourselves, and in the process, find ourselves under the rule of Satan, under the rule of sin. And lastly, because of our sin, we're not able to be in perfect relationship with God anymore because sin breaks that relationship that we had with God. So this is the original covenant that's made. Be fruitful and multiply. Take my image throughout the earth. And as that happens, my glory goes throughout the earth. It's broken, and the the rest of Scripture is a story about God reclaiming that glory and reclaiming that authority throughout the earth. And so it starts with Adam, and then when that ends up falling apart, um, we see later in Genesis 12, he comes to Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he begins to work here and says, I'm going to use you and bless the whole world. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you. And, and so the covenant is going to come through him as he blesses the world through the revelation that comes with his family, um, through his interaction with the earth, but ultimately we'll see through Jesus. Now this is really important to be able to catch. And I don't know if we've actually made this statement. But when we, we were talking about these series of covenants that are taking place in the Bible, important to know that when a new covenant comes, that does not negate gate or get rid of the old one before it. So this one, we're not done with Adam and now Abraham. Abraham becomes, um, the the focus of Abraham becomes a a tighter focus through which it's coming. So now it's not through all just humanity. Now the focus of this covenant comes through Abraham in his family. And then we see it tightens up a little bit more with the Mosaic covenant as it becomes those who keep and honor the law that he has given to them, that those people out of the children... It's not all of Abraham's family, actually, even. It's not the Ishmaelites. It's not people coming from there. It's this specific Israel who is following and keeping his covenant. So as the different covenants come, they're just narrowing the focus, but they're not narrowing the goal. And they're not narrowing the people who are meant to be. The the goal is always the world. And the goal is always God's glory. And what we see eventually is that this tightens the focus in until you go from the world to one nation to one specific part of this nation to one kingly line with David all the way down to one man. And that is Jesus himself. And from Jesus actually we see the focus comes in and then shoots back out again. And now it becomes universal in the sense that all are welcome to be a part of this. Jew, Gentile, male or female, slave or free. This is the language that the New Testament uses to talk about how everyone is meant to be in on this new covenant. Now, we'll talk about it as we get to it. The, the rules change a little bit here because when we get to the new covenant, we don't need these anymore. But even that, you can say, it's not that. The, Jesus makes it clear. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, talking about the Mosaic covenant, but rather I came to fulfill it. So it's not so much a 
crossing it out as much as a filling it out and bringing it to its natural purpose and conclusion. Kind of like the, the best illustration I can come up with right now, and I'll keep thinking about this, but is a, what, what happens between caterpillar and butterfly, basically. The butterfly is the ultimate fulfillment of the caterpillar. The caterpillar doesn't necessarily go away and get killed. It just it transforms into what it is meant to be. It becomes the fullness. And so there's no caterpillar anymore, but it's not because that, that life form died out. It's just because it became the fullness of what it's meant to be. And, and that's what we see in the new covenant. Um, here is what makes the prophets so interesting. The prophets become our bridge and our gap filler through this whole story. Because what the prophets are doing is they are living in this period, the Davidic covenant, the the period of the kings. They live in the rule of the kings. But, and most people don't recognize this and for this reason miss a lot, their primary message is a pointing back to the Mosaic covenant that the people are still actually supposed to be living under. And in the midst of that, as they're talking about the failure here, an anticipation of the new covenant. And if you want to get really technical and full, an anticipation of the new covenant as the ultimate fulfillment of the Adamic and Abrahamic covenant. So in a sense, they really do bridge all the way through these things. And that's what makes the prophets very interesting. So I want to talk real quick. I want to start and just talk about here. That the, that the prophets are pointing their way back to the Mosaic covenant. Um, when we think of prophecy, or when we think of prophets, we tend to think future. Like those, that's almost synonymous. A prophet is someone who predicts the future, right? Um, but that's not actually the definition um, in, in the Bible of what a prophet is. A prophet can do that. That's part of what a prophet's job, but a, a prophet's job is primarily to speak on God's behalf to the people. And primarily what they're speaking about is present-day issues. The things that are in present day for them. So they're speaking about what's happening for them and they're speaking actually in light of this covenant behind them that they continually point back to over and over again. Um, Really important to catch this. The message of the prophets is not a generic stop being bad, start being good. It's not what they're there to talk about. They're not, they're not just mad because people are st- stealing. They're not just mad because people are immoral. They're not just, so it's not just don't be bad, be good. Actually, the purpose of the prophets is this, to call people back to covenant faithfulness. To call people back to covenant faithfulness. So it's not, it's not you're being bad, stop it. It's you forsaken Yahweh, go back to Him. It's you've let down your end of this, return to this. Return back to this covenant that you made all the way back with Moses when he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Hold up your end of the deal is what the prophets are saying over and over again, calling them back to. And in that sense, really, the the theological context for the prophets is the book of Deuteronomy. That's, that's, the, that's the context that the prophets are operating out of, are, are building out of. Deuteronomy is, and, and you talked about it a couple weeks ago, but Deuteronomy is basically a sermon or kind of a ser- series of sermons, uh, depending on how you read it, that Moses gives. 
as they come up to the promised land for the second time. Okay, so the first time they come up to it and they go in and check it out and then they all wuss out and say, we don't want to do this. And so God says, fine, you'll wander for 40 years. After wandering for 40 years, they come back up to the edge of it. And before they go in, Moses says, all right, we're going to have a talk this time, people. And he, he, he basically lectures them and, and tells them their history. Okay, just so you know, this is what happened last time. And he starts to talk through the ways that God's been faithful to them. And he reminds them of all the covenant that they, that they made with him. And, and says that you are called to be faithful to this. You are to continue on in this. And we get the famous passage, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And so we get these big passages. And, and really they build out of this as he charges them to stay faithful. Turn real quick if you have your Bible to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15. This is what Moses says to them. He's basically laid it all out for them. He's laid out the law. He's talked about the blessings that come with obeying the law and keeping the covenant and the curses that will come with breaking it. And so this is kind of how he wraps up and concludes. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Um, that is the message of the prophets right there in, in like six verses or whatever. That's, that's what the prophets are saying to them over and over again is this is exactly what we were told. If we obey, if we stay faithful, we get blessing, we get life, we get joy. If we reject it, then we get curse and we get punishment, we get judgment, and we don't get to stay in the land, which is the prophets keep prophesying. They're going to take you away. Um, and so this is kind of the, this is the foundation that they will build from. And, and as Bo kind of mentioned, God is faithful, which means, he, which means He does what He says. And so what He said would happen in Deuteronomy 30 is what happens with the punishment that comes to His people. Um, the message of the prophets, okay, like I said, it, it varies, but basically the message of the prophets can be summed up in these three movements, these three ideas. All right? First is this. You have broken the covenant, so repent. You've broken the covenant, so repent. The second movement is because you won't repent. Notice it's not if you won't repent. It, it pretty much always ends up being because you won't repent. Judgment is coming. 
because you won't repent, judgment is coming. And then movement three is this. Yet there is hope beyond judgment for a glorious future restoration. There is hope beyond judgment for a glorious future restoration. Almost every one of the prophets will have one, if not all three of these themes in them. And so this is actually, as you're reading, this can be even helpful. As you're reading through the prophets and it just feels like it's kind of the same thing over and over again, or what are they getting at? What's he trying to say here? Look for these. Try and figure out where you are in, in the movements. And just know it doesn't always happen perfectly like that. The prophets go back and forth and back and forth. So it'll go theme one, theme two, back to theme one, theme one, theme one, theme three, theme two. So it kind of jumps around, but keep those in mind as you go into it. I want to take you real quick to Isaiah 1. Isaiah is kind of the quintessential prophet. He's got this really long ministry and a really long book to show for it with a lot of messages. Isaiah 1 is cool because we actually get to see all three movements that I just described to you in one chapter. And so I want to show that to you real quick. Isaiah 1, here's the first movement. Remember, you've broken the covenant, so repent. You'll hear it here, starting in the very first verse. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Notice this. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. So right off the bat, he's not coming in to to say you're being bad. He's not giving them a generic, stop being mean to each other. The problem, he says, right off the bat, you have forsaken Yahweh. You've forsaken your God. And so that is the problem that he has. Now, jump ahead to verses 11 through 14. These are some really interesting verses when it comes to capturing, uh, to, to seeing a little bit the big picture of the Bible and how it all ties together. Verses 11 through 14 says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? So he's talking about these people who are sinning and doing all these things, but they're still bringing sacrifices to the temple. They're still doing these burnt offerings. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Um, One of the common misconceptions about the Bible, one of the the greatest misunderstandings in and outside of the church is that the Old and New Testament are these like two disjointed ways that God worked. 
And then the Old Testament is all about doing. He was all about doing things. And so he gave this really long law with all these lists of rules to do and do and do and do. And if you don't do those properly, that's, there's good news. He gave you a bunch of sacrifices and ceremonies that you can do and do and do and do. So it's all about doing in the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, it's all about your heart. And what God really cares about is the heart. And it's about believing. And it's about trusting. And it's about grace. But the Old Testament, it's all doing. But if you take a look at the, at the scriptures, you will notice in passages like, um, like Isaiah 1, that even from the beginning, all the way back in the Old Testament, God says, that's not, that's not the point. Doing sacrifice, ceremony is not what I'm after. I'm after your heart. And so you can, you can offer me all the sacrifices that, by the way, he commanded them to do. You can offer all of those in the world and it means nothing because I want more than just doing from you. I want your heart. I want trust. I want faith. And, and that becomes really um, evident that there's something else. And this is also really important because another common misunderstanding is in the Old Testament, people were saved by following the law and obeying the sacrifices. In the New Testament, they're saved by Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, they say it, it doesn't seem to be working that way. God says the sacrifices in and of themselves are doing nothing for you. Uh, something greater is needed, um, which, is, which is very interesting. So we're still in that first movement. Go to um, 16 through 20. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So, so what we see here is repent. He's already told them, you've broken the covenant, so now repent. Now we move into movement number two, verses 23 through 25. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. That's his people he's talking about. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. So here's movement two. If you do not repent, then judgment is coming. Or because you won't repent, judgment is coming. But pay attention there. What is the purpose of judgment in verse 25? Why is he going to bring punishment and judgment on them? What does he say? To purge the dross, to remove the impurities from them. It's not to blow off steam. It's not, I'm just so angry and I'm losing my temper. His goal ultimately is to restore his people. To get rid of impurity and restore them back to what he wants to be, which is what we see in the very next verse, 26. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. 
So you can see in there that, that the goal actually is to restore and make them right now. More on that in just a little bit. We're going to talk about looking ahead to the new. But real quick, I want us to step back again and see this now within the big picture. As we've said to you, the prophets are so often misunderstood because they're pulled out of the larger story. And Scott said it like this, therefore they often look very angry. Not only that, I would add, but God, the God of the prophets, the God of the Old Testament, often looks very angry. Um, because we divide it out, because we pull it out, it, it, it looks as though, I know, I, I, I've read before and remember thinking, it, it looks like God is just like, standing up in heaven with lightning bolts in his hand, just going, I dare somebody to sin. I dare, I dare oh, I wish you would. You know, like, like he's always a 9.5 on the losing it meter, right? And, and just one little thing is enough to push him, and he's going to come down and, and smite everybody. And that's what, that's what he did. He didn't kill, in the Old Testament, you don't kill people, you smite them. And so he was always smiting in the Old Testament, is what it, is what it seems like was happening. You go, man, it just... He, he seems so wrath-filled. He seems so vengeful. He seems so angry in the Old Testament. What switches between there and the New Testament that we see all this love and this grace and this mercy? But if you step back and you look at the wider context, both historical and theological, covenantal, then you can see a different story is unfolding there. By the time Isaiah is writing chapter 1 of this, Israel has been in existence for either 500 years or 700 years, depending on where you date the Exodus. There's two major dates that are kind of debated there. Depending on where you date the Exodus, it's been in existence for 500 to 700 years. And, and basically, from the very beginning, they have been living unfaithful to the covenant. Remember this, Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, getting like the details of the law and what's happening. They're building a calf down on the bottom. So he's getting the law, which means they've made it about zero seconds into the covenant <laughs> before they're unfaithful to it, right? They're already breaking the law. 500 years of this. Now just put this in context. Roughly 500 years ago is when Columbus discovered the Americas. So that far back, that much time, and, and, and I know, you know, hear me with my kind of messed up history. I know Columbus didn't, whatever, found America. He wasn't even in North America. But, but bear with me for just a second here. Imagine that 500 years ago, settlers come and they begin to start this country that is America. And in the process, these settlers make this treaty. This kind of large, powerful, benevolent nation comes in and says, listen, we'll take care of you if you guys will enter into this alliance and this treatment with you. We'll provide for you. We'll protect you while you're this small little nation. We'll protect you from those around you. We'll be here on your side. We'll be, we'll be helping you, whatever you may need. And, and America, let's just, I'm just going to say China, okay? So China is that big nation that comes in and, and helps these small group of settlers, and they enter into a treaty together. How long... Can, can that small little nation, can those American settlers go being unfaithful and refusing to hold up their end of the bargain before China swoops in and says we're done? Like how long can, um, can those settlers start to team up with all of China's enemies, 
How long can China send in provisions and food and supplies to which those American settlers take it and then turn and thank Japan for all the supplies that they just got? And bless, because this is the idea. As God blesses his people, they receive the bounty and the food and the harvest, and then they go praise Baal for it. And so how long does, that, does China let that happen before they say we're done? A year? Maybe that would be crazy, merciful, a year? 500 years, 600 years, God lets this happen. That's why I think if, if people understood the story and saw how this all unfolded and how this worked, the common accusation would not be that the God of the Old Testament is too harsh and too vengeful, but rather, if anything, that he's too patient. This is actually kind of the accusation that Jonah makes. Scott mentioned it. You remember, he goes and he preaches to Nineveh, and, and he preaches to them, and they repent, and then God spares the city. And when that happens, Jonah doesn't say, now that is really shocking. Like I am completely, this goes completely against the Old Testament God that I know that you would spare them. That's, that's not what happens at all. In fact, if you go read it, Jonah 4.2, he says the exact opposite. Jonah says, when God spares the people, I knew this was going to happen. He says, I knew you were going to do that. This is why he even says this. Is this not why I didn't want to come here? This is why I did not want to come, because I knew, and he says this, that you are a loving and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And I knew this is so like you, God, that you take wicked people and you forgive them all their sins when they repent. That's the way the prophets viewed him back then. They, they knew that that was so in line with his character to forgive and to, and to um, show mercy to even wicked people like the Assyrians when they had lived in that when they came to repent. Um, so this is the picture that we kind of get. Now I want to talk through this real quick. That they're living here but also looking forward to this. Now, hear me. The prophets have amazing things to say about the grace and the goodness and the love of God. But I still recognize this. It still makes for some hard reading sometimes. Because even though God shows mercy to those who repent, there's just nobody who does repent back then, hardly. It seems like it never happens, so there's not a lot of mercy to show. And, and so you do. You can read through the prophets sometimes, and it seems like it is forever and ever talking about the slaughter that's coming on people and, and walls being destroyed and pregnant women being ripped open and the young being killed and, so, and all these awful things. It really is, honestly, what the prophets are predicting is something very close to what, what we're hearing about ISIS doing uh, over in that part of the world right now. It's, it's, that's, that's what happens when the Assyrians come into town. That's what happens when the Babylonians come to town. So there, there is a lot of places in the prophets where it's just tough um, as you're reading through. But there are some amazing passages that, that talk about um, this restoration. Here's, here's the biggest problem. The prophets say over and over again, repent, come back, repent, obey this, heed this, follow this. And yet what they discover is that it, by and large... The people can't. It's almost like they don't have the ability in them. Now here, they can follow the rules. They can do those things. But they can't ever have a heart that wants to. That's why Isaiah can say in in chapter 64, he comes and he says, all of our righteousness, we're all these wicked, awful people, and we're all messing up, and all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. Even at our best, 
were filthy rags, and more literally, that's menstrual cloths. That is, um, the idea is to evoke this like repulsiveness um, to them, and especially in a place where that makes you ceremonially unclean. And they go, man, that is like I, that, that's what Isaiah says to them. We don't have it in us, which is what makes these words in Isaiah 53 so surprising and so amazing that comes to them. Go to Isaiah 53 real quick. We won't read it all tonight. You need to read it all tonight when you get home because it is good all the way through. But this is, this is what it says here. Chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, this is huge, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah is describing would have been, like I said, just crazy and, and almost unfathomable. That's, that's why I think he starts off and says, like, who, who would believe this? Like, who could believe what, what we're about to start talking about? And he says this, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what you need to know is that almost every time the, uh, the arm of Yahweh is described in the Bible, it means two things. First of all, it means God is going to save his people. Second of all, it means it's not going to be pretty when he does it. So, like, like the arm of Yahweh gets described a lot in, in talking about the Exodus. But the Exodus wasn't this um, sweet, easy-going God swoops in and just kind of picks them up and floats them off in the clouds out into the wilderness, right? Or all the way to the promised land. No, the, the Exodus is God coming in and unleashing wrath on the Egyptians through ten devastating plagues. That's the arm of Yahweh. It comes to save, but it comes with a sword in hand. And so, whenever you see this, someone's going to get saved and someone is going to pay to get people saved. That's what makes this so interesting, though. Because here it says the arm of the Yahweh is coming, but the sword doesn't fall down on his enemies. It falls down on his servant. That the arm of Yahweh and the wrath is going to come on this righteous person. And that all the sins of God's people that they cannot get right, all the iniquities, all the impurities, that God is going to take that, it all needs to be punished, and He's going to put it on this righteous, suffering servant, and then He's going to strike that servant. And then He's going to pierce that servant for their transgressions. And so Isaiah can say, we don't have the righteousness in us, but the incredible, unfathomable, amazing news is that God will one day give us a new kind of righteousness. He'll actually say that this person, this servant, will cause many people to be accounted as righteous. That we get His righteousness. 
looking ahead to this day when Jesus would come and fulfill all of this, taking away sin and declaring righteousness. But not only that, the prophets look to this day when not only our sins taken away and, and we no longer held accountable, but also we, we now have this new desire in us. And, and Scott referenced it, Jeremiah 31, specifically verses 31 through 34, Jeremiah talks about this new covenant. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when they left the promise, or when they left Egypt, when they were coming to the promised land. It's going to be a different one where he says, the law is not going to be written on some paper for you to try to align your life with and check all these boxes off the law instead he says is going to be written on their hearts meaning this that now they'll actually have like the desire and the will and the ability to follow through on that to want to do those things um, which is uh, which is a beautiful promise the question is how how is that going to take place and Ezekiel gives a prophecy that tells us about that go to Ezekiel 36 real quick and then we'll wrap up Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 25, this is what God says to His people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you, deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Um, this is the story that he says, and, and the way Ezekiel says that Jeremiah 31 will take place is by the giving of his Holy Spirit. Um, actually, uh, that's, that's actually a really central aspect to the big story of Scripture that we often kind of push over on the side as like a bonus part of being a Christian, by the way. Bonus, you get the Holy Spirit. The Bible actually paints that as like a central truth that had been anticipated for hundreds of years one day when the Spirit comes and we get that inside of us. And so he says these amazing things to them. Now catch this. He says to them, I will come, I'll sprinkle you, you shall be clean. This is in verse 25. From all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. That is, that when that day comes, no longer will you hand all your rule and authority over to these idols. I'm going to cleanse you of all of that. And then he says, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. And he says down in 27, I will put my spirit within you. How is it that we can ever come back to the place where we resemble God and all that he is once again? The only way that that actually takes place is when God himself actually takes up residence back in us. And then he says down Towards the bottom, you will dwell in the land, verse 28, that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, 
and I will be your God. And it anticipates this day when one day all three aspects that were lost all the way back in the Garden of Eden, our ability to resemble God, our ability to rule rightly under His authority, and our ability to relate to Him will all be restored. And Ezekiel is pointing to this, which is where we come to next week. Actually, what we're going to talk about first is this. The 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then we get to start talking about this, this huge concept in the Bible and the Gospels called the Kingdom of God and what we mean by that. So, next week we will talk about that. Um, any thoughts, questions, anything you need clarified or whatever? I know we, we're unloading a lot every week. So, All right. Glad you guys are here. We'll talk next week.